0: Here we are this morning once again looking at the book of Romans as we have been largely doing uh, for the last few years. We're in this section of Romans 12. We're going to be looking at uh, particularly verse 2, and there's been a decided shift moving from that more doctrinal section of the forgiving grace of the gospel, the transforming grace of the gospel, the international spread of the gospel, and coming now to what our attitude ought to be to God, what our attitude ought to be to other Christians, to civil rulers. And this is particularly relevant if we think in terms that as Paul is writing this, Nero is on the throne in Rome. Further, we'll find our attitude to people in general, our attitude on living in the light and love and liberty within the body of Christ. John Lord wrote of Rome in his Beacon Lights of History, we have now surveyed what was the most glorious in the states of antiquity. We have seen a civilization which in many respects rivals all that modern nations have to show. In art, in literature, in philosophy, in laws, in the mechanism of government, in the cultivated face of nature, in military strength, in aesthetic culture, the Greeks and the Romans were our equals. Yet all this splendid exterior was deceptive For the deeper we penetrate the social condition of the people, the more we feel disgust and pity, supplanting all feelings of admiration and wonder. It is a sad picture of oppression, injustice, crime, and wretchedness, which I have now to present. Glory is succeeded by shame, strength by weakness, and virtue by vice. This Roman bathhouse there in Bath, in United Kingdom, is simply to remind us that this was uh, this scene of much uh, wickedness. We've heard in Romans 1 about the dishonoring of their bodies, God giving them up to vile passions because of that. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. These are things that Paul could see in the Roman society around him, with their unrighteousness, their evil, their covetousness, their malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And if we are honest... In our unconverted days, we are marked by these same sins. And strange as it is, we as believers are opposed to all of these sins. And yet in our weaker moments, there is an attraction that the remaining corruption in our heart has to go out to one or another of these sins. In the book of Romans, we hear the warning about idolatry and we look at current Rome and see emperor worship and see that Nero felt bad after he murd- murdered his second wife, Poppaea, and so he had a temple built to her. We have the warning against adultery in Romans 1 and we think of Nero who married his, Papeia's second wife and they were involved in an adulterous relationship all that took place in the public baths. We hear the warning about murder, and we can simply look at Nero and see that Nero murdered his mom. Well, but we don't feel as bad when we learn that she murdered her husband so that Nero could come up. But then when mom was working with his brother-in-law, trying to keep Nero somewhat in line and trying to get him to be nice to his first wife that mom liked. Well, mother ends up dead, the brother in law ends up dead, and the first two wives end up dead at Nero's instigation. The gladiators people being fed to the beasts and Christians burned for the fire that likely Nero started to clear out area that he wanted to build. And the Christians need to be blamed for that and are burned for supposedly causing the fire. Covetous. You can read these historical accounts of the vast amount of food that was spent on a meal for somebody just dropping in at the homeless, such extravagance on the part of the wealthy that came uh, on the backs of the poor. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your spiritual worship. Do not... Be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of these historic Reformed catechisms, asks in its first question, What is your only comfort in life and in death? I want you to see its fittingness to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And we could read on, but I'm jumping on to question two. What must you know? To live and die in the joy of this comfort. Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, all that he's done for us, that you present your body as a living sacrifice to God. The way we think is that you do what you're supposed to do, child, and I will give you the cookie. You don't get paid on Monday for the week of work that begins on Monday. You get paid on Friday. You do the work then you'll get paid. And this is so embedded into our human psyche that we think that that's the way that salvation is. We will work, 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 and we'll please God in the flesh, and then God will pay us. He'll give us the cookie, eternal salvation, but that is exactly wrong. God gives the cookie. He gives salvation And then he expects us to work out of gratitude to him. And we see this in our passage. It is, here are the mercies of God that he's shown us by grace. But growing out of that is a thankfulness that says, my body is going to be a living sacrifice to my God, and my mind is transformed by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So if you thought that Christianity is a little bit one-sided from last week, where we're looking at the body that needs to be presented to God, well, see the balance here. See the inclusion. What has Paul left out? My body needs to be exalted as a sacrifice to God, and my mind needs to be renewed. It needs to be transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit. So the mercies of God, His justification, His forgiving me through grace, by grace, through faith, sanctification by the Holy Spirit, being made more like Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and this international spread of the gospel because of His electing mercy and His electing love. All that ought to produce in this, well, of course you can have my body. Well, of course you can have my mind. So in verse 1, what am I to do? Well, we are urged to present that body as a living sacrifice. Now in verse 2, how am I supposed to do it? How do I get my body to be this sacrifice? Well, it all starts with the mind, doesn't it? Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed in your mind. It is one thing to point out a goal to a person and encourage him to try to reach it. Paul has done this in verse 1. It is a different matter to show him how how he should go about reaching that goal. The apostle does not fail us at this point. Here in verse 2, he shows the hearers and the readers what should be shunned, and what should be done in order to reach the goal. And if you'd like, you can see on your handout sheet, if you do not have a handout sheet and would like one, raise your hand, the men will help you. But here we come to Roman numeral one, the requirement. The requirement of moral transformation. First of all, there is a negative command Do you remember last week how we were saying how the Apostle Paul could command if he wanted to, but instead he exhorts, he urges, he makes the appeal? Because Christianity has got to be lived out from the inside. That's where we start. It's not just external conformity. But here's the negative command. In the ESV it is, do not be conformed to this world. And the first thing that we notice here is the negative form. Do not be fashioned to this age. It's negative. And some people don't like negative. Can't you just be positive? Well, if we didn't live in a sin-cursed world... We could just be positive. In heaven, we'll be positive. We'll be able to smile all the time, time, time. But here, there was a pivotal test in Eden that warned negatively of the reality of death if you sin. Nine of the Ten Commandments have a no or a not in it. No other gods, no work, not, not, not. It is only honor your father and your mother that is positive. But it's not hard to imagine where there's a negative aspect that comes in even there. Do not be disrespectful to your mother and father. But that one is positive. The negative takes in the reality that we are natively disposed to sin, and we saw it in Romans 7. There remains this part of us in this life that is still bad and is still inclined to evil, and it is a process of dealing with it. Notice the dreaded object of this injunction. Do not be conformed to this age. It is, in our version, the world. But it's speaking of the world in this point of time. The word here for age is one that is used in Matthew twelve thirty two. Jesus says it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. And it gives us this whole idea that we're living in light of two ages. We're in one age now, but it's only for a period of time and then comes the age to come, and the age to come is eternity, and that's the one that lasts. We've got it again in Ephesians 1.21. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This present age is under the sway of the devil, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, 2 Corinthians 4 in verse 4. And one of the reasons why we ought to be careful that we are not fashioned, that we are not pushed into the mold of the world is because this age is not going to last. Don't wrap everything up into this world. Everything that I think about, well, it's, it's my clothes, it's my car, It's my home. It's my retirement account. And if if your horizon gets no higher than this age, then you're in trouble. It's a passing age. Further, notice with me the essence of the injunction. Do not be conformed. Do not be fashioned. One has come up, Phillips has come up with a famous paraphrase of this. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And that is exactly what is happening for any of you young people that are going back to school, whether you're a public high school or you're a public university that you're in. The world is trying to take you and fit you into its mold. You need to think like the world. You need to think in terms that there is no creator God, but our God of chance will do just fine. The world is going to press you into its mold. There are no male-female distinctions. This whole antiquated notion that God made them in his image, God made them male and female in his image after his likeness. No, get rid of that. The whole notion that you have a conscience, that you feel guilty, that's an evolutionary hangover from a from a bygone era. You are, and Paul says, you can't let them do, that, do this to you. And we have to keep in mind, it's not like these believers at Rome are living in a wonderful Christian utopia. No, they're living at the center of paganism. And like you and me, they're going to have something in their hearts that at their bad moments wants to go out towards some of these sins or at least the example of those around there pulls down their own moral standard. Do not be fashioned to this age. This word of being fashioned, it, it, it comes from a, a term of the, the, the schema, the, the, uh, the appearance, the framework. For the framework of this world is passing away. But then keep in mind that the precise grammatical form that this is given is a present imperative which tells us that this is not like baptism. Baptism. I got baptized once. Good for you. That's all you need to do. If you're a believer, then one that'll do it. But when it comes to this injunction that you are not to be conformed to the world, do you know how many times that you're going to have to do that? Well, I don't know either. But it's a lot. It's day after day after day after year after year where I am not being conformed to the world. It's not a one and done. It is the course of life. There's the negative command. Now secondly, be the positive command. Be transformed. But be transformed. Here is the term from which we get our metamorphosis. There is one thing that grows as a, as a hairy little caterpillar into the cocoon and then there is a change and a butterfly or a moth comes out. This term of the, of the form, the substance, is used of Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This term of metamorphosis is used of Jesus. He was transfigured before them. In one moment, Jesus looks like an ordinary man. And then before that small group of disciples, he is wonderfully and gloriously transformed for a period of time. This word that is used of us as believers, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here is Jesus. That's the image that God is making us into, and the Holy Spirit is taking us, and by a process is making us more and more to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 12, it's speaking of an internal transformation. And again, the grammatical form, it's a present passive imperative. And that present tense tells us you're not one and done. But this is something that goes on every day of your Christian life, over the course of decades, over your whole life. You are to be transformed into the image of God. But what is this thing about, well, I'm going to be transformed? It's kind of like that Ephesians 5, 18 that tells us, be being filled by the Holy Spirit. And I could argue and say, well, if I'm going to be filled by the Holy Spirit, I think the Holy Spirit's going to have more to say about that than what I am. And there's a truth to that. But Paul is underscoring, though the Holy Spirit needs to work, we need to be willing to work along with him. You remember that passage, Philippians 2 and verse 12, that tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you. Well, wait a minute. Is it God who is working in me, or is it me that is working out my salvation with fear and trembling? And it is both, and so it is here. Be Transformed speaks of a complete interchange of thought, will, and desires that Christians work together with the Holy Spirit to bring about in their lives, resulting in a recognizable external change of actions and conduct. It is a metamorphosis of a person's inner being. So that, this is a little bit of a reach for me. Me, working along with God, that I can be transformed? Well, let's look back at what we've seen in Romans 8 and verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, and there it is we are tremendously involved in putting to death our sins. But as we are choking those sins to death, the Holy Spirit is prompting us and enabling us to carry that out. And it's not really stated in the passage, but you remember Romans 8, that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. And if we are not to be fashioned after the world, being forced into the mold of the world, then our goal is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be conformed to his image. Thirdly, see, what do we learn? The practical relevance of the negative and positive commands. Number one, beware of that natural slippage into worldliness. Those of us in the adult Sunday school class heard of how in our little kayak in the river that if we are not working to paddle upstream, then the force of the current is going to take us down. And that's built on imagery that comes from the Puritan John Owen that just recognizes that in the Christian life, you can't just stay at the same place. Either you're going upstream in righteousness or you're being pressed downstream in some form of wickedness. The Roman Christians... Are not going to be able to, to go to the Colosseum and watch some gladiator fight against a beast and lose and get eaten by uh, uh, or another gladiator cutting his head off and bleeding to death. They, they, they're not going to be able to just watch that and, and uh, you, you know say amen at the end of something like that. You got to go against the current. You can't hear the moral filth. and and the extreme selfishness of Nero and others of the rulers and of the senators and of the the ruling class, and and not be impacted. No, you're going to have to consciously say, I am paddling upstream. I know that it's hard, but I am going against it. Beware of the natural slippage into the world. If you think you can just sit tight where you are in the Christian life, then I'm going to predict that if we root around a little bit, you're going to find that there is slippage into worldliness. Do not be conformed to this age. Secondly, beware of stagnation and pride at past achievement. When we're tempted to ease up and to relax our scanner and not do as what we heard in Sunday school in one of the comments of, at the end of the day, scanning our lives, looking back over our lives. What direction am I going? If we will scan our lives, we're always going to find areas where the Spirit of God is saying, you need to work on this. You need to work on that. This needs to be developed. And if you think that as a believer you're going to get beyond this process of sanctification in this life, let me tell you, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. We can avoid one area. We can avoid immorality, but become bitter in our lives. Now, how does that fit with The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And I'm marked by bitterness. Keep on the path. Keep looking at the negative spirit of this age and say, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be godless. I don't want to forget that God is my creator. I don't want to fight against God. And say that though God made me a male, I want to become a female. I don't want to fight against God in that. One man, one woman, together for life, that's God's standard. Romans 12 is diametrically opposed to the subtle workings of stagnation where I am not really growing in grace. Take heed. When you think you stand, lest you fall. Thirdly, beware of a fatalistic diminishing of God's grace. The days are too evil. There is no hope of sanctification. Everyone in my school, everyone that I know in my university, everyone is heading in this direction and there's no hope that I'm going to be able to stand against the tide of wickedness, do not diminish the power of God's grace. Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to those living at Rome. All the selfishness, all the intrigue, all the self-advancing and self-promoting murder of Nero's court at Rome. And Paul says... Oh, yeah. Well, in your case, there is no hope. Forget it. Let's just go home. Let's close up shop. No, the temptations of our society can be great, but the power of the Holy Spirit is greater. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God's standard is you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And whatever difficulties we're facing in our society, where the world, the devil comes to us as an enticing prostitute to pull us into sin. Our brothers and sisters there in China face a monster that is going to hit them over the head if they don't do what the monster wants. They've just released in recent days that the the approved churches, the three self-churches, have to agree now to promote the policies of President Xi, and they have to agree that the church is going to support the China's Communist Party's agenda. Uh, One pastor responding said, well, then why don't Christians just join the Communist Party? It's a whole different situation there. But to these believers living in the rotting filth of decadent Rome, they are to not be conformed to the world, and they are to be transformed by the renewing of the minds. Here we are, Roman numeral two, the means. The means of the moral transformation. First of all, a the identity of the process, it is renewal. The renewal of your mind. The word here is used of the new covenant, a new heaven, new song, new Jerusalem. And here Paul is highlighting the new you, the transformed you. There is this newness of life, Romans 6. We are to serve in the newness of the Spirit, Romans 7 and verse 6. The inward man is being renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. Please understand that this is not a self-help manual for those who want to please God. These directions of Romans 12 are given to the church of believers who already know forgiving grace and already have been taught about sanctifying grace and have been taught about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is at this time that the mercies of God are invoked to urge us to live for God out of thankfulness. Secondly, B, the focus of the process, what needs to be renewed? Your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The general meaning is it's the thought, the reason, the understanding Paul is going to talk in Ephesians 4 about the futility of their mind as an unbeliever. And then he's going to say, But you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And what's the practical relevance? First of all, number one, exercise your mind as a Christian. I've had a man say to me, When I come to church, I feel like I'm back in school. And that's presented as a bad thing. How are you going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and not be learning something? How are you going to be a workman who does not need to be ashamed if you're not seeking to rightly divide the word of truth? How are you going to be renewed in your mind if you don't gird up the loins of your mind and give your mind to biblical Christianity. Exercise your mind. For us, we have that mind-numbing television programs, not all of them, but many of them that make us oblivious to the great realities. You must exercise your mind. And those of you who have your SST degrees, your Sunday school teacher degree, take heart and press on. Where's the next generation of leaders for the church, churchmen for the church, church women for the church? Where's it going to come from? Well, to some degree, it's going to come from that which goes on down that educational wing. Take encouragement. One of the things that has come out in this edict, I, I think maybe you had a question, as I had a question, we recently had a prayer letter f- uh, from China and there was something of interaction with church leaders and, and, and who are the leaders and what do you have about Sunday school? And I'm thinking, what, what, why are they so interested in Sunday school? This new edict, no Sunday school for children. Oh, that's Interesting. They see something that has been working and they want to take their devilish thumb and put down on it. Use your SST degree. Number two, not only exercise your mind as a Christian, but nourish your mind. We need to be thinking on the law of God day and night. And how will we do that? if we're reading the scriptures once a week or once every two weeks. No, we've got to give ourselves. We need to nourish our minds. Roman numeral three, the result. What's going to happen if we refuse to be conformed to the world and if we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, what is the result? Roman numeral three, the result of this moral transformation. First of all, God's will. We will prove what God's will is. Well, what is God's will? God's will defined is A. God's will defined. That you may discern what the will of God is and that it is good and acceptable and perfect. Sometimes the will of God is what God plans and decrees. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1, verse 11. But that's not what it means here. It means the will of God's command. It means the preceptive will of God, the precept or the commands of God. Secondly, be God's will proven. If you're looking at the New King James, it is that you may prove. And it's from a a word that assumes a positive result. And so you're doing a testing so that you can prove it. The ESV expands this, takes that one word and puts in their text, by testing, you may discern. By testing, you may discern. So you just need to understand that that's all, one, that's all one concept. So there's going to be, if you will say, I'm not going in the way of the world. I'm going to have my mind renewed. Then the end result is going to be, you're going to know what the will of God is. And you're going to be able to examine it by testing. And at the end, you're going to say that it is wonderful if we live out this requirement of moral transformation, we will demonstrate in our experience the reliability of the will of God. How many Christians, how many Christians truly forgiven, truly experiencing sanctification, and have lived for the Lord for 20 years, for 30 years, for 50 years, For 70 years, and how many of them have you heard them say, God, let me down? It was vain for me to trust God. Vain for me to give my life to God. No. And what do we find out about this will of God? Thirdly now, God's will described. God's will described. And it's an unusual way that the text highlights this good and acceptable and perfect. It takes these adjectives that describe and then puts an article out in front and says, the good, acceptable, and perfect. Uh, What are you going to find out that the will of God is? We're going to find out that it is the good, that it is the acceptable, and it is the perfect. It is good. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. It is acceptable. Romans 12 and verse 1. Acceptable. It's pleasing to God. It is perfect. Perfect in its scope and perfect in its death. When we arrive at heaven, whether we're a, a just soul of men made perfect or whether it is at the final day when body and soul are glorified. Whenever we get to heaven, we are going to be in perfect alignment with the will of God. And what we have in the scriptures is to guide us so that we can know the will of God. And if we're honest, our greatest issue is not understanding what God wants us to do. Our greater issue is getting us to do what we already know is right. But God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Fourthly, D. God's will applied. What is Paul saying about the will of God here? Well, number one, he's saying consider its place, the will of God, It's place of government. It has authority over our lives. What does Jesus want me to do? What does God want me to do? His law is to guide us and direct us. Now, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Maybe you flip a page or two. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. And I want to read these three verses And I want you to do some counting. I want you to see how many times does love appear and how many times do we find a law from the Ten Commandments. Now before we do this, please understand that Paul is not putting the law in here for Christians until he has already dealt with their universal need of the gospel He's already told them about justification by faith. He's already told them about sanctification by the Spirit. And with all those building blocks in place, he says, now, Christians, I'm going to give you some of God's commandments as a repeat. So here it is, Romans 13, verse 8. We begin reading together. Owe no one anything except to love each other. How many times do you find a commandment being repeated? Well, by my count, it's four. How many times does love appear? First time through, it was four, but I think it's five. Is that what you get? What's the point? Paul is extremely comfortable putting a Christian's love for his neighbor and the latter table of the Ten Commandments, they together. Not as a way of pleasing God. That's done back based on Romans 3, justification by faith in what Christ has accomplished. But God's will applied. God's will is our governor. It tells us what pleases God. It tells us what we are to do. Number two, by way of the practical relevance, this God, God's will applied, consider the breadth of application. The law of God is perfect. It's going to touch every area of your life. What would God have me to do? What would God have me to do? And you can legitimately come up and say, God hasn't said a thing about it. I don't have a clue what I'm supposed to do. If you're reading your Bible all right, there will never be a time where you find a situation that God does not give you a principle. And if you think God is not addressing your situation, please talk to a Christian friend. And maybe they can help you find it. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that scripture has been breathed out by God and it's profitable for doctrine reproof correction instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work your commandment David says is exceedingly broad and then as we close this morning we're looking at the law or the will of God applied Consider its power of condemnation. Its power of condemnation. I thought you said the law of God doesn't have any power of condemnation for the believer. Well, that's true. But not everyone under the sound of my voice is a believer. And we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, under its condemnation, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. For some of you, before you can be forgiven, you have to see the misery of you being someone that is in controversy with God, that your life is not according to his will. And for you, that law of God is hanging over your head like a hammer that is going to hit you in the day of judgment. And where do you run for safety? Only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But Jesus goes on to invite. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, judgment day, and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock, founded on the rock of Jesus Christ. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell in the day of judgment. And great was its fall. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to move out from under the hammer of his judgment and get into the shadow of his cross. That's the only place of safety. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and as you go to Jesus at the cross, you take all of your sin with you, and you leave it at the cross, you believe in him, and you collect his perfect righteousness. It's as easy as that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will Be saved. Let's pray.